Uh, If you would, take your Bibles and and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. I'll be looking at this beginning part of Paul's uh, second missionary journey, now no longer, as we saw, uh, no longer with Barnabas, but this time with uh, a new team, Silas, and they're going to pick up Timothy, and then there's a, a subtle clue in the text this morning that the author of Acts, uh, Luke, is also joining them at this point in uh, the Lord's work through them. Uh, so Acts chapter 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word? Please give your attention to God's faithful and true word. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by or passing through Mycenae, they went down to Tros, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Tros, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is perfect. You revive the soul through it. We pray that you would uh, increase in our hearts a desire, a hunger for your word, that it would be as sweet to us as the drippings of the honeycomb, and that we would take it in, be nourished by your word, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired Luke, carried him along as he recorded these things for us and who has preserved these things for us throughout the ages, that that same spirit would now illumine our hearts. Give us understanding. Uh, Help us to see what you are saying to us. 
And Lord, we pray that you would help us in all things to see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. In July of uh, 2020, I was uh, at Ridge Haven, our camp and conference center up in Brevard. I was speaking to the uh, junior campers for a week of camp there. And uh, because of how things were going in the summer of 2020, I was not really allowed to kind of hang out with the campers, which gave me a little bit of extra time. And so uh, I often go to Ridge Haven for different things, but I, I don't always have kind of the liberty of time that I had at this particular uh, event. So I thought I would take advantage of the extra time um, where I wasn't, didn't have any responsibilities kind of during the middle of the day, and I would go on one of the hikes that I have always wanted to go on. They've got beautiful hikes up there in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and one of the trails is called the Continental Divide, and uh, it's a beautiful trail. It's about six miles. So I took advantage of the afternoon and uh, grabbed some lunch, or it was a little before lunch, grabbed a snack rather, and my water, and my phone, and some earbuds, and went out, thought I'll just go out in the woods and enjoy myself for a little bit of a hike. Well, went on the hike, made my way to the top of the trail where there's a sign that says Continental Divide, and you can look around. It's an amazing panoramic view of the, the surrounding area. Took a picture, just kind of reveled in the beauty of it for a minute, turned behind me and saw an arrow pointing in a nondescript uh, direction and thought, well, this must be the way that I should go. So continued to follow the trail, saw uh, signs that I was on the right trail, didn't think anything unusual about it until I came to an open space, kind of a wide open space on the trail, and the trail divided. I could go one way or I could go the other. Pulled out my trail map, which is really just like a blue line that somebody drew on a piece of paper. Not very helpful in this situation, but I pulled out my trail map, trying to figure out where I am, trying to orient myself, even pulled out my phone and looked at my navigation and thought, wow, I am really, really far away from camp. How did I, this doesn't seem right, but I've seen the signs for the trail all on the way, and now I've got to make a decision. And neither option looked good. It was a hindrance to continuing through either way. One of them was a wide road with deep ruts, not typically what you see on a trail in the woods. And the other one was a private driveway to somebody's house. Not typically something you see on a trail in the woods. I thought, this seems odd. So I went down the wide road with the deep ruts, and I could hear things off in the woods, and I was starting to feel a little bit scared and um, you know, mustered up my courage to keep going. Came back. It's not the right way. Went down the private driveway. And I didn't think a trail would cut through somebody's property like that. Came back. Did that about three or four times, and I thought, all right, I'm just, I just got to make a decision. I went down the wide road with the deep ruts, and all of a sudden, buckets of rain just started pouring out of the sky on me. I thought, okay, this is not good. So I called somebody back at camp and said, I'm not sure if I'm on the right trail, but I need some help. Can you come pick me up? And he said, where are you? I sent him my little GPS location, and he said, whoa, how did you get there? I said, I don't know. Can you come pick me up? And I was right near the road, and so he came and picked me up. This, uh, this is not only an example of my lack of directional skills, but also perhaps a little bit of an illustration into the uh, main point, I think, of this passage, uh, that oftentimes we face hindrances with the spread of the gospel, and we are in need of help. And the good news is that God always provides a way 
to face, to overcome, to push through the obstacles that we face in the spread of the gospel. And this passage uh, kind of revolves around several obstacles, several roadblocks, several hindrances where there was help needed for the gospel to continue to spread. We see in the first place uh, in in verses 1 through uh, 5, I believe, there is a cultural hindrance. There's a cultural hindrance to the gospel. We see in the second section, uh, this call to Macedonia, we see that there's a providential hindrance to the spread of the gospel. God seems to be cutting off their path in different ways, redirecting them. And then we see in the final scene with Lydia and the others gathered at the river, we see kind of what we might call the ultimate hindrance, the ultimate obstacle to the spread of the gospel, the human heart and its response to God's word. And in each of these, we see how God provides a way forward through these things that could potentially um, you know, divert the spread of the gospel or stand in its path, if I can put it that way. Just a quick overview of the passage before we look at these three points. Paul and Barnabas are separated. Now Paul and Silas and Luke, uh, that verse 10 says we. So Luke's saying, I'm in on this as well. Paul and Silas and Luke, along with Timothy, uh, continue on the, this missionary journey. And after they are redirected by, a Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit through a vision, they cross the Aegean Sea, lies between Greece and uh, kind of the, what we call Asia Minor or Turkey uh, today. They cross the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. And while there, they find a group of women praying by the river. And one of those women becomes the first convert in Europe along with her household. And a church is established for the first time in the continent of Europe, in the city of Philippi. That's a little bit of an overview of the passage. Let's look at these hindrances, these roadblocks, and see how the Lord provided a way through them. First, let's look at the, the cult, what we're calling the cultural hindrances. Cultural hindrances. You, you notice in verses 1 through 3, they go back through these cities. They pick up Timothy in Lystra. Presumably, Timothy has come to Christ during the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas were on. And now as they're coming back, this is probably about four years later, roughly, no more than four years. Uh, Timothy has gained a reputation among the believers in that region. And Paul wants to take Timothy along with him uh, on the rest of their journey. Kind of a young disciple that he can mentor, that he can invest in. Uh, And we know lots of things about Timothy from the rest of the Bible that we won't talk about today. But at the very least, what Luke tells us here is that there's a bit of a problem with Paul's desire to take Timothy with him. Timothy is not circumcised, but he is Jewish. His mother is Jewish. His father, who's, uh, as far as we can tell from the passage, has probably died. His father was a Greek. And so there's a problem. And Paul understands this problem to be a cultural hindrance. He knows that if he takes Timothy along with him, and does as, he, as his pattern is, is, and goes into the synagogues in the cities where he uh, arrives to try to preach the gospel, that there's going to be a big resistance to that just from the outset. That they won't listen to Paul if they know Paul's companion, Timothy, is an uncircumcised Jew. Because in their eyes, Timothy, an uncircumcised Jew, would be worse even than an uncircumcised Gentile. He would be viewed 
as an apostate. And enough people in the area, enough of the Jews in the area, knew that his mother was Jewish, knew that he had not uh, received the sign of circumcision. And so there was a hindrance to Paul being able to carry the gospel forward. And so Paul overcomes this cultural barrier by having Timothy circumcised, which raises the question, isn't this what they dealt with in Acts chapter 15? Isn't this the whole point of the Jerusalem council? The circumcision is no longer required. Why in the world does Paul seem to be waffling on this issue? In In the first place, he seems to be very adamant. Circumcision is not required, and he stands up and testifies to that and comes into sharp disagreement with those who said otherwise. And then the Jerusalem council says, that's right. You, you don't have to require circumcision any longer because salvation is through grace, and, and, and we're not going to require Gentiles to be circumcised in order to belong to the church. So why is Paul requiring Timothy to be circumcised in this instance? Well, first, Timothy's not a Gentile. He's, he's Jewish, and the Jerusalem Council in no way said that Jewish believers could not you know, live as good Jews while they were also good Christians, and there was nothing said, nothing indicated towards Jewish believers that would require them to give it up, and, and really nothing that would require them to continue in it. The main thing was to say that circumcision can't save you, that that's not the point of circumcision, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. And so circumcision becomes optional. But Paul knew there would be an immediate roadblock to people hearing the gospel if Timothy remained uncircumcised. You think about it maybe this way. Timothy's status as uncircumcised would create so much noise that the people Paul wanted to preach the gospel to would not be able to hear the gospel from the outset. Have you ever been to uh, a basketball game, maybe high school or college or maybe a professional basketball game, and when uh, a team, one of the teams gets to go to the foul line to shoot a free throw, often the fans from the other team are behind the goal, and what are they doing while that uh, player is trying to shoot a free throw? They're waving hands around. Maybe they've got little noisemakers. They're trying to distract the guy so that he can't focus on the task at hand and hopefully will miss the free throw. There's all these noisemakers to distract them from the main task at hand. There are lots of things like that that we might call cultural hindrances that are just simply noisemakers that make it difficult for people to hear the good news that we desire to share about Jesus. Or another way to think about it might be this. We ought to be trying and thinking about how to remove unnecessary offenses to the gospel so that we can gain a hearing with people who need to hear the good news of Jesus. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews, he lived as a Jew. To the Gentiles, He lived as a Gentile. He became all things, he says, to all people so that he might, so that some might be saved through him. Paul is a remarkable individual because there there are certain things when it comes to the truth of the gospel, the, the faithfulness of God's promises kept in Jesus Christ, where if you push against those, he digs in. It's completely uncompromising on the core truths of the gospel. 
And then at the same time, Paul exhibits an amazing flexibility on things that are unessential, on things where there's not uh, kind of a core issue at stake. And so when it comes to the truth of the gospel, Paul digs in. Absolutely do not require Gentiles to be circumcised. This would compromise the very good news we're trying to proclaim because it sends a mixed message that you've got to do something on top of God's grace. And yet, when the hearing of the truth of the gospel is at stake, Paul says, Timothy, go get circumcised because they're not even going to open the door for us if I bring you along. And this will remove unnecessary barriers so that we can preach the gospel to them. Think about it this way. The gospel is offensive enough in itself. And we don't need to add unnecessary offense to the gospel. Just try talking to somebody about sin and repentance and judgment and the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus at the cross and and the need to trust in what Jesus has done for salvation. You get enough roadblocks just saying that. Even among some Christians, we're called to avoid unnecessary offense, to remove those noisemakers, cultural hindrances, you might call them, so that we have a clear hearing for the gospel. There's a potential cultural hindrance in this passage, Timothy's uncircumcised status. The Lord enables Paul through what you might call sanctified common sense and godly discernment to overcome that obstacle and have Timothy circumcised so that they can share the gospel with Jews without it being an unnecessary offense to them. Not only do we see cultural hindrances, but we see providential hindrances as well. Paul and Silas and crew are uh, going back through the regions where, where Paul had been before, and it seems that he has an idea to continue going west, probably toward Ephesus, which is on the coast of the Aegean Sea, across from Greece, uh, if you can have a mental map of that, or maybe not. Uh, but they were going to go west, probably heading towards Ephesus, because Paul liked to go to major cities to proclaim the gospel there. Uh, he had, you, you could kind of go out from there in multiple ways. But we're told twice that they're stopped, that they're, they're redirected. And, and we don't know exactly how this happens, but Luke simply tells us the Holy Spirit forbid them from speaking the word in Asia, or what we might call Turkey today. And so instead of going west, they turn north. They go up towards a region called Bithynia, uh, kind of up closer to the, uh, the Black Sea. You know, uh, Ukraine, all that kind of is above the Black Sea, if that helps you orient yourself. They start going north, and uh, as they're going north, Luke tells us, the spirit of Jesus prevented them from entering into Bithynia. He's kind of hemming them in, right? He's squeezing their path so that they can't go this way, they can't go that way, and they end up in a port city called Tropes. From there, Paul receives this vision uh, from a man in Macedonia saying, we need help, Send, send help. There's a providential hindrance, but it's kind of ironic, right? It seems like a hindrance for Paul and his company. Now, we want to go here. No, you can't go there. Oh, we want to go here. No, you can't go there. And, and there seem to be these roadblocks, and, and yet the Lord is all the while redirecting their path because God has a plan that is different from Paul's plan. 
God is at work in history, and for whatever reason, he didn't want Paul going to Ephesus yet. He didn't want Paul going up into Bithynia yet. He wanted Paul going to Greece. That was where he wanted Paul. I think, you know, while we may not hear a voice directly saying, don't go here, but go there, the Lord is still at work directing our paths today. Oftentimes there's a roadblock. You think you need to do something. You make a plan and you head towards it. And the Lord stops you in your tracks. And what do we do? Well, if you're like me, you probably get a little frustrated. You know, what's going on? This is a good plan. I've made this plan. This is the right thing to do, clearly. And yet I think this passage is reminding us and teaching us that God, who is at work in history, who governs all of history, Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, in all their actions, God sovereignly rules over all of history, even your choices. The Proverbs tell us the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord is still directing us today. And, and part of what Luke is reminding us and teaching us here is that we need to live with that kind of outlook on life of, of joyfully submitting to the Lord's providential hindrances in our life, trusting that he is leading us where he desires us to go and seeking to be faithful wherever he places us. But the irony of it is, not only was he putting these hindrances in Paul's way, he was removing an obstacle for those in Macedonia who needed to hear the good news. I'm sure Paul would have eventually ended up there He's always had his eyes on going where, where people had not been before to spread the gospel. But the Lord was directing his steps because he wanted them to go into Philippi. And so he was removing this hindrance for the Macedonians to receive the gospel. Where does the Lord have you? Where is the Lord leading you? Do you know, are you trusting that God is good that he is sovereignly in control, and that he leads his people faithfully and with skill as a shepherd. And are we seeking to be faithful where the Lord has us? Paul and company sought to do that so that when they received the vision, they pulled all the pieces together and said, now, now we see the Lord wants us to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so they go. There's been an overcoming of a cultural hindrance, now they've been able to interpret rightly God's providential hindrances, leading them to go into Macedonia, and the wind is at their back. They get there in record time because this is where God wants them to be. And yet when they arrive, uh, we see more of the same. There's providential hindrances, there's cultural hindrances, but ultimately there is this kind of more significant obstacle, the hindrance of the human heart. Notice what happens when they get into Macedonia, starting from verse 11 and following. They sail, they arrive in Neapolis, they end up in Philippi, which is a significant city in this area, a Roman colony, so it would have had some prestige. You would have had Roman citizens populating the city, former soldiers, uh, perhaps. It would have had some, uh, some high status as a city in the Roman Empire. And I wonder if, this is pure speculation, so take it for what it's worth, but I wonder if in receiving this vision of a man in Macedonia, if Paul thought, 
I need to look out for this guy when we get to Neapolis. When we arrive in Macedonia, maybe that guy that I saw is going to be waiting there for us, and maybe he's going to welcome us. Uh, He's the one who asked us for help. But when they get there, who do they find? Nobody. There's there's no welcome wagon for Paul and company, And and it may seem a little bit odd. So they keep on going. They arrive in Philippi. There's no synagogue. There's not even enough Jewish uh, heads of household, male heads of household, for a synagogue to be established in this significant city. And so they just hang out for a few days. So they remain there for a few days. And then on the Sabbath, as was the custom, if there was no synagogue in a city, then Jews gathered down by uh, a river to pray, perhaps studying about that good old way and who shall wear the starry crown. Good Lord, show me the way. You know that song? Uh, I think about that every time I read this passage. Anyway, they gather down by the river uh, where there's a group gathered to pray. And culturally speaking, uh, hear me me say this in context, culturally speaking, this was an unimpressive group. There there were no men there. There weren't enough Jewish men for there to be a synagogue. And from what we can tell, it appears to be Lydia and her household servants. Uh, We're not really told who the rest of the group is, but from what we can tell, it's Lydia and her household, because those are the people who were baptized in this event. By first century standards, this was not an impressive group. And yet, doesn't God always use the unimpressive in the eyes of this world, those on the margin? I mean, they're outside of the city gate. Geographically, they're on the margin figuratively because they're women and they're Jewish in a largely non-Jewish population. God uses the unimpressive. He uses the seemingly powerless. He uses those who may be looked down upon and despised in the eyes of the world. That's who he chooses. That's whom he chooses to bring the message of the gospel and to establish his witness in Philippi and from there to spread out to the remaining parts of Europe. And notice these cultural hindrances, providential hindrances, but notice there's this hindrance of the human heart that the Lord overcomes. Luke names Lydia. It's always important to pay attention when the narratives of the New Testament name people because that means they were important. There's so many unnamed people in the New Testament, but Lydia is named. She's named probably because she became prominent in the church in this area. Uh, Philippi becomes kind of home base number two for Paul and his companions in terms of missions work. Paul writes a letter to this church. They were partners with him in the gospel. They supported the mission work that he was engaged in. They became very dear to his heart, and probably they met in Lydia's house. She's wealthy. She's a seller of purple goods. Um, That may not mean anything to us today unless you just love purple. But in the first century, purple was the color of royalty. And she was was from a place called Thyatira, which was known for the dyes that created this purple fabric that was a sign of royalty and wealth. So Lydia is wealthy. She's probably a widow. She is the head of her own household. Um, she's wealthy, she's a widow, we're told that she's a worshiper of God, though she's not Jewish, Uh, she's she's clearly Gentile from the context here. And notice what Luke tells us about Lydia. She heard them, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to Paul's message. Isn't that just a wonderful phrase? 
Because ultimately, at the end of the day, cultural noisemakers, God's leading us here or there or putting roadblocks in our way, really those don't compare to the problem of the human heart. That our hearts are corrupted with sin. Our hearts outside of Jesus Christ are far from God. And we are not able in ourselves to hear and to receive the truth of God's gospel, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because our hearts are so broken by sin. And so we see here what what theologians often call effectual calling or internal calling. Lydia heard the word. Everybody can hear the word if you've got ears to hear, but not everybody can receive the word in their hearts unless the Lord first opens our hearts. And we see the Lord doing this with Lydia. He opens her heart so that when she hears the message of the open heart of God toward her and Jesus Christ, she immediately receives it. God makes her new. She has eyes. He opens her spiritual eyes. She has ears. He opens her spiritual ears. She has a heart. He gives her a new one so that she hears the good news of Jesus and she responds to it and even pleads with them after being baptized. If you really think I'm a believer, then stay with us. And she exhibits hospitality towards this group of missionaries who had come. We are all, um, though we may not be facing cultural hindrances that we're aware of, uh, that we may not be looking at things in our lives as providential hindrances, everybody has in common the hindrance of the human heart. We are all in need of the Lord opening our hearts, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear to receive the message of his grace in Jesus Christ. If he doesn't do it, you can't embrace him. But when he does, you can't not embrace the good news of Jesus because of God's sovereign love and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. God chooses the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are strong. God chooses those things that seem foolish in the eyes of this world, a cross and an empty tomb, a ragtag bunch of disciples who lived in fear before the resurrection of Jesus, who needed the help of the Holy Spirit, Uh, an unimpressive, in the eyes of man, an unimpressive group of women outside of the city gate because there wasn't even a synagogue in the city. God uses the things that don't look like much in this life in order to display his glory, in order to bring the message that is the hope of the world, the grace of Jesus Christ, to the rest of the world. And he's using you. He's using his church to do that. We are not impressive. We are not strong. We should not seek to be strong in the eyes of the world. We should not seek to be wise in the eyes of the world. We should be anchored to the good news of the cross and exalt that and trust that God is still opening hearts today. So may we, as we consider this passage for our lives, may we think about and be careful to avoid the unnecessary offenses that we may add to the message of the gospel, perhaps how we communicate, perhaps what we wear, Uh, Perhaps the secondary matters that we make of primary importance, uh, may we be careful to avoid unnecessary offenses in our lives so that people will have a hearing of the gospel. 
May we trust God's providence and be faithful where he has placed us. His plans are always good, and though they may be different than ours, we can trust him always. And may we, like Paul and others, pray for the Lord to open hearts so that when you share about Christ, when you demonstrate the love of Jesus to another, you'll, you'll find that the Lord has already been present. The Lord has already been preparing somebody like Lydia or another to hear that message, not only to hear it, but to receive it by faith, to give their attention and their devotion to it. May the Lord do these things uh, in us and through us as we continue to bear witness to the grace of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for sinners. Would you pray with